And thank you very much for coming. So the event today is again a co-production. This time it's between African Studies Centre and the Oxford Central Africa Forum. And we are very happy to have Simon Turner with us today. Simon is Associate Professor at Global Refugee Studies, which is part of the Department of Political Studies at Aalborg University in Denmark. Simon has carried out a long-term long fieldwork among Burundian refugees in Tanzanian camps. Um, and this resulted in a wonderful book um, entitled The Politics of Innocence, Hutu Identity, Conflict and Camp Life. But Simon has also conducted fieldwork with refugees in Nairobi in, in Brussels. And some of the key themes that he explores in his work are issues of belonging, of placemaking, secrecy, conspiracy and hope. And more recently, Simon has also turned to exploring the relationship between the Rwandan state and its diaspora. Um, the talk today is entitled Staying Out of Place, the Dialectics of Belonging and Becoming in Exceptional Spaces. But just before turning to Simon, I just want to quickly mention we have um, Patricia Daly from Geography here today. Um, and if there is a perfect respondent to this talk, it must be her. Um, so thanks, Patricia, for coming, and we look forward to your brief commentary after the talk. And Simon, it's, it's over to you now. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I don't know how much you can hear in the back. Um, I'm afraid I'll be reading my paper because um, that's all I could imagine, manage. And um, I've already written it, so why not? Um, it takes place, <coughs> I, I guess, just to say what it's about. It's, it take, I'm comparing Burundians who choose to, Burundians who live in refugee camps and Burundians who live uh, clandestinely in Nairobi and looking at these two places that are sort of out of place or exceptional places and trying to argue that um, it's <coughs> arguing in relation to a debate about displacement and emplacement I mean the, the fact of being moved by force and trying to settle somewhere else and, and I'm coining this term which I s in many ways hate myself called uh, dire placement which is uh, attempt to see uh, this position in a non-place as a resource that the refugees are using um, in their way to navigate towards a future. Um, so I'm also trying to argue that um, in terms of looking at place and non-place, we also have to have the question of temporality in, involved. Um, and as I mentioned, I'll be, I'll be reading my thing. I my glasses. <coughs> so taking my point of departure in an ethnographic exploration of Burundian refugee camps in Tanzania, as well as living clandestinely in Nairobi, I argue in this paper that displacement is not only a disruption into people's lives, but can also be a strategy in and of itself to plan for the future. The 100,000 Burundians living in a camp in Tanzania are not there of their own free will, and they see their future and fortune elsewhere. Those amongst them who make the dangerous journey to Nairobi have made a choice and are seeking a future outside the camp. However, their future is also elsewhere, as Nairobi is also a non-place between the past and the future, where they do not want to put down roots, but are preparing for a future, either in Burundi or in Europe or North America. In order to understand the meanings of displacement and emplacement for these refugees, I argue that we must view displacement not simply as a traumatic experience that must be overcome, but as a strategy in itself. 
Killing time in a refugee camp or hiding on the outskirts of a big city is to live in a non-place or in liminality or the exception. However, as much as this is a parenthesis, or have you pronounced that, in time strung out between a long lost past and an unknown future, it is also a space of opportunities and new beginnings. In other words, disruption and displacement can produce, produce a powerful position. In this paper, I explore how individuals and groups maneuver in the exceptional space, making most use of it as a disruptive non-place. I explore the complex relationships between being Nairobi and the camp and becoming someone in the future. On the one hand, they engage in mobile livelihoods in their present place of being, while on the other hand, they attempt to avoid becoming too involved as they prefer to prepare their future by remaining liminal in the present. Therefore, this thing about living not in the present but for the future. <clears throat> it is my intention through this investigation of two non-places to contribute to an understanding of how temporality and temporariness affect notions of displacement. Temporality plays a role in the sense that refugees living in camps and clandestinely in cities are living for the future more than for the present. The camp and the city are temporary by nature and the question is how refugees inhabit and make use of temporary spaces, if at all. By comparing the refugee camp and the city, I intend to explore concretely how notions of displacement and emplacement are created, contended and policed in different contexts of temporary places. Um, and basically, I do this by comparing the two places and, and actually it was part of two different research projects about something else, but it came increasingly clear to me <coughs> that it made sense to analyze the two together, not as a comparison just as a comparison between two different places, but actually as two dimensions in a connected system um, for the simple reason that many of the refugees who I interviewed in Nairobi had also lived in the camp. So I was, in other words, de facto doing a longitudinal study following a group of young Burundians who had left the camp and gone to Nairobi. By way of comparison, there was also another group of Burundians living in Nairobi, they had co no connections to the Burundians from the camp and had arrived in the city in search for a better life there. They blended in and had no dreams of return. I'll touch upon this group in the paper because their strategy of being someone in the present, because they had a strategy of being someone in the present rather than becoming someone in the future. And this presents a sort of an interesting comparison with the other Burundians who are the focus of, of this paper and sort of provide a backdrop for the analysis. And now I do the exercise that I usually hate people to do. <coughs> According to the Oxford English Dictionary, <laughs> <laughs> the prefix this can mean negation, so this in displacement, can mean negation, separation, reversal, removal, and expulsion from. So to be displaced, displaced is not simply to move from A to B, but to be negated a place in the world, to be separated from one's place, to experience removal and expulsion, something that is linked to loss and something where one is not the active agent, but rather the object of others' force. And therefore also very often this um, orientation towards the, the past rather than the future or the present. Um, the prefix dia from Greek dia means through and uh, no, from the Greek through can mean through, across and apart. So dia placement then is about being in a place that one passes through on the way to another place in the future. Dire placement is also about remaining apart in order to move forward. 
Whereas displacement is about losing the place of the past, and you could say emplacement is about recuperating what was lost. lost. Diaplacement is about remaining out of place in the present in order to find place in the future. So main contention in this article is that moving out of one place does not mean that one automatically moves into another place. Often one ends up in a kind of non-place. Um, and then of course Agamben, which everyone, who everyone talks about, his notion of, of the camp as a nomos of modernity is an obvious way of conceptualizing these places. However, the idea of a camp as a space of exception is too broad once one enters the camp and explores the lived experience of the camp. Being framed as bare life, refugees still make sense of the non-place they inhabit, giving the place meaning, giving it hierarchies of power, politics and violence. However, it remains exceptional, and the nap camp never becomes a city, as Agir has argued. <coughs> the question to pose in this article, then, is how the camp of the city relates a similar but not identical non-places for the undesirables. How does this shape the dialectics between setting it, settling in and remaining outside? The refugees in the camp are contained and secluded away from normality, while at the same time being made visible as objects of humanitarian government, giving them a sense of at once of being in the eye of the storm of this humanitarian, global humanitarianism, and also at the same time being forgotten debris of international realpolitik. The Burundians living clandestinely in Nairobi, on the other hand, are sub subject to other kinds of social invisibility. They are no longer pushed to the margins of the nation into the Tanzanian bush or the arid lands of northern Kenya. They are in the metropolis of Eastern Africa, the city of fortune, hope, modernity. They are in Nairobi because it makes them connected, as they say, to the rest of the world. At the same time, however, they are socially and legally invisible. As irregular, as irregular migrants, or refugees, they do not exist in the eyes of the Kenyan authorities or the UNHCR. This, as we shall see, is a position that they strive towards because it lets them plan for a future beyond the city. Now I'll go <coughs> give an example of a, a guy called Gérard, who um, I met first time in the camp in Tanzania, and then I met him again in um, Nairobi, where he became one of my sort of main informants, and uh, I've actually also met him again in, in Bujumbura some years later, where he's become a, a fat man, a big man. <coughs> when I first met Gérard in Lukoula camp in Tanzania, he was in his late teens curious to speak to the foreigner, practice his English, and tell me about the political problems in his home country. He attended the post-primary school in, in the camp. It was called a post-primary school because the Tanzanian authorities had not permitted secondary schools in the camp. The camps for Burundian refugees who had fled the violence after 93 were meant to be as temporary as possible, which meant that any sign of putting down roots was discouraged by the Tanzanian state. So for the same reason, refugees were not allowed to move beyond a four-kilometer zone, they were not allowed to <coughs> take employment with Tanzanians, and they were not allowed to, to till the soil um, within the zone because the Tanzanian state was seeing them as this kind of matter out of place and the faster we could get them back, the, the better. Um, and, and one way, of course, was that there should be safety at home. Another one was that they should avoid them putting down roots in, in, in Tanzania. UNHCR and international relief agencies had a slightly other take 
on this liminal space as they believed that the refugees needed to be kept activated in one way or another while held in this exceptional space in order not to become apathetic receivers of arms, the, the so-called dreaded relief mentality. Therefore, they did their best to engage the refugees in various activities, theatre troops, teaching hygiene, vocational training centres, women groups, and so on and so on, to get these people ready for the time they, they may return. Um, so despite the many... But despite these many projects, they were, no, they were not able to support the post-primary school because the Tanzania authorities perceived this as a sign of permanence. So instead, the school was funded by parents, um, elite uh, refugees, who saw the school not as putting down roots, but actually about preparing for the future. And this is why I'm talking so much about this school. So a group of parents who themselves held elite positions had established the school in order that their sons did not lose out in opportunities for the future, and their daughters as well, when they were returned to what they dreamt of as a radically transformed Burundi. The school ran a Burundian curriculum and was in no way intended to help the students integrate into Tanzanian society. While many refugees felt that they had learned a lot of skills in the camp, due to the hardship, due to contact with Rwandans and, and NGOs and so on, the educated elite still felt that their lives had grounded to a standstill, while time was moving on um, back uh, time was moving on and their peers back home in Burundi were progressing they felt that they were not getting anywhere um, so the parents who started the school wanted to keep their children azure so that they were on a par with their peers upon return while they desired the bracketed time because it because they did not want to be assimilated into the present of Tanzania they still wanted to make use of this time in brackets brackets to prepare for the future so back to Girard. He had always been a hard-working entrepreneurial boy who had worked hard at school and also in his spare time had tried to organize a vegetable garden outside the camp in order to make an income and had tried to encourage his, his mates to do the same but they were too lazy, he claims. So he had to do it on his own. In the afternoons after school, apart from doing the vegetable garden and his homework, he also attended secret military training exercises in the bush run by CNDD, which was the dominant of two rebel groups in the camp. This was something that he and the others only told me once in, in Nairobi because in the camp you could not uh, talk about that kind of thing, it was very banned. The boys themselves, he explains, were very eager to join the rebel groups and fight the evil Tutsi. Girard explains it to me almost six, six years later in Nairobi and this is a quote from Girard. He says, even before starting secondary school I was active training. Luckily I was clever so they didn't send me to Burundi to fight. Instead, I stayed in the camp where I trained other kids. Almost everyone was involved, and they were not forced. Even the very young boys, some of the adults were saying to me, you are intelligent. You should not just be going to fight and become a simple soldier. You should study and become a big man when you return. But I wanted to fight for my country. I would rather die with a weapon in my hand than die of hunger in the camp. This caused a dilemma for the parents, because on the one hand, these were the parents who were heavily engaged in this kind of politics and strongly behind the CNDD. On the other hand, they were worried about their own son's homework, and they were not interested in their sons becoming cannon fodder in the guerrilla war just across the border in Burundi. They, saw, they foresaw a much greater future for their sons and daughters as big men in the liberated Burundi. This led a group of parents to decide to send their sons and daughters, but 
I keep saying sons because of the group that Gerard was a part, there were 25 boys and one girl, um, to Nairobi where they could be out of harm's way. I think that Gerard's story reveals the many, the many facets of displacement and placement taking place in the camp. It is easy to see the camp as an ambanesque, agambanesque, I'm saying, um, space of exception, the normals of modernity. This is certainly the picture we get when we see the attempts by the Tanzanian state to keep it outside the ordinary and create a state of exception. The Tanzanian state is able to uphold its sovereign power by deciding who is inside and who is outside the Tanzanian state and by attempting to avoid blurring these boundaries which are constantly threatened by the refugees when, the big, when they dig gardens and barter the produce with Tanzanians or when they board minibuses and go to the local town to buy goods or sell labor. Tempting as this image of the refugee camp is, it does not cover all the dimensions of the camp because among other things, refugees are also exposed to the caring regime of biopolitics by UNHCR, as I already explained, and I think I just skipped this bit. Um, So the relief agencies are not, they're, they're also not looking, I mean, although they're doing a lot for the refugees in the camps, they're not trying to emplace them in Tanzania, they're trying to prepare them for this future when they can go back. <coughs> Gerard's story also reveals that emplacement takes place through day-to-day -day practices, despite the desire to remain out of place. Gerard digging the Tanzanian soil is literally speaking a means of connecting to Tanzania and becoming rooted. And Girard is not alone. To enter the camp is like entering a Tanzanian city with restaurants, bars, hairdressers and bicycle taxis, creating a kind of lived space in the present. Going to school and doing military training is also one level, a way of creating lived space. However, there are also other dimensions to these activities. The elite who organize military, military training and who send their children to post-primary school are not doing so in order to become in place in Tanzania. They're doing it for the future of Burundi. They actively using displacement as a resource, keeping their sons outside the Burundian national territory while preparing them for a future inside Burundi. They're using the displacement in the present as a means to shape their future back home, aware of trans the transformative character of the liminal space of the camp. Furthermore, they're not merely preparing their sons' prospects of a bright future if and when they return. They're also trying to make this return happen through their political strategies, which include armed resistance and using the camps as platforms for the rebellion. They're trying to shape the future of their homeland and actively changing the conditions of return. The dislocated non-place of the camp, which concretely means that they are beyond the reach of the Burundian state and the army, allows the co creation of collective political identities that actively work to change this future, not in the camp, but in Burundi. The camp, and in particular its dislocated nature, becomes a political resource. Furthermore, as mentioned in the introduction, furthermore, it becomes a political asset that needs defining, defending, and policing, so that in particular the youth do not get too tempted by life in Tanzania. So this is another part of it, that the, this political elite is actually policing what you can do and what you cannot do in the camp, because they have a certain vision of the future that they want to create, and you can't move outside that. And for the same reason, the political elite detest the refugees who simply are concerned with doing business, as they call it, and are becoming too emplaced um, in, in the camp. So in the camp, 
this political elite is trying to create this pure non-place and it's and the uh, the refugees could be reminded of the collective loss that the Hutu had suffered and what they therefore should strive for in the future rather than focus on the present livelihoods. Displacement and placement are in other words not simply the result of movement. They are equally depend on the temporality of living in the present or for the future. The camp as a site to live for the future is a result of its position as a seclusion site and a state of exception. Meanwhile, this exceptional space has the paradoxical effect of being, of at once being a space to produce an apolitical um, bare life, while also creating a highly politicized space where politi political actors are creating a space for the future. So politics emerges in the camp as a means of recuperating the non-space created by the international relief agencies. However, the control of the camp by, so I'm trying to say that one hand, the camp has this strange feeling of once being apolitical, everything is being trying to be depoliticized and create them into bare life or what you want to call them. On the other hand, actually due to this, because everything is, is open and, uh, and not structured, it becomes extremely politicized. You cannot do anything without being related to one of the two competing political parties in the camp. And the control over the camp by the political entrepreneurs ends up by reinforcing the sense of a space that is tightly controlled and constraining for the individual refugee. It was this saturation of political tensions that constrained the opportunities of young men like Gérard because it limited his choice of futures. So Nairobi for these young men became a way out of the confines of party politics. It became a means to open up the possibility of multiple futures beyond the camp and beyond the city. How am I doing for time? Okay. I'm fine. You don't know how much I've got. Right? Yeah. <laughs> 30 minutes left. Great. So I, now I move to Nairobi. I was fortunate to meet Gerard again in Nairobi six years later. He was by now a young man living together with two other young men in Kawangware, an area which was dominated by interim shacks and houses built to host migrants from upcountry and from places like Rwanda and Burundi. This is an area, sort of, it was semi-urban, semi-rural. There were goats and cows in between, and everyone seemed to be not really Nairobian when they were there, um, even if they were Kenyan. Um, so the three of them shared a single room in a building made of corrugated iron. Gérard was obsessed with perseverance and with accumulating new knowledge. Um, he already spoke Kirundi, Swahili, English, and French perfectly, so now he was teaching himself German. And he insisted on greeting me in German, because of my uh, school German as, uh, growing up in Denmark. Um, for him, life in Nairobi was about sacrificing. It was about meeting the challenge in order to succeed in one thing, to get an education, to gain knowledge. An important institution in Gérard's life, and, and, and these people are living off nothing. He, he told me a lot about his, the economy of how much money he actually had. And after paying the rent, they had $17 between the three of them for a month. Um, so they didn't eat meat and they didn't drink, of course, and so on. An important institution in Gerard's life was the Pentecostal church. Most of the Burundians in Kawangwara were active members of one church or another, Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic, just as different church groups ran the schools and the so-called universities for students from the Great Lakes. The church gave Gerard a sense of hope for the future and encouraged him and his fellow Burundians to persevere, to keep on struggling for an education and to keep faith in the future. Religion gave these young men and women hope and hope 
for a better future was essential for survival in such conditions and I've tried to write about this in something that David is um, editing this whole thing about hope and, and it as a way of relating the present to the future I think is really fascinating Gérard and his friends complained that they had a reputation among the other Burundians in Nairobi of being political because they came from the camps however Gérard emphasised that they were studying in order to be able to help build and they were not political and they were helped to build and lead the country in the future one thing he did not like about life in the camp was the politics he might have been active in military training but the several, he several times told about incidences where he was reprimanded for being out of line with the dominant political um, line he appreciated life in Nairobi because politics did not control everything and everyone Young men in Kawangara lived off arms and odd jobs, um, often from the churches or church groups. They had no refugee documents and were therefore constantly vulnerable to harassment by Kenya's notoriously corrupt police. And the education that they received was second-rate at best. Despite these conditions, they still had chosen to live here rather than in the camps. Something I kept asking, why are you here if it's such, life is so tough? And the reason was, you are more in touch in, Burundi, in Nairobi, they would say. Nairobi may not be a pleasant place to live, but it opened up opportunities, or at least promised a dream of opportunities to do better in the future, either back home in Burundi or far away in Europe and or America. Gérard and his friends claimed that they had become more open-minded in Nairobi because they were in touch with more people from different tribes, as they would say, and with different opinions, as opposed to the camp where the political leaders controlled all opinion. So in other words, in Kawangware, we find a number of young men and women who are determined to succeed despite the odds. They have left the camps in Tanzania with a purpose, namely to improve their education and hence their hopes for the future. Even those who have not been able to pursue their studies in Nairobi due to financial difficulties or lack of legal documents prefer Nairobi because it means freedom and being in touch and ultimately the possibility to shape one's self and one's future. I have a quote here from Samuel, who is slightly older than Gérard and who has a wife and children. He explains why he's in Nairobi, and he, he doesn't come from these camps. He comes from he was in the camp in north of Kenya, which is I don't know much about them. I don't know about politics. And he has this quote, which is a language-wise a bit difficult to understand, but let's see. To stay in a town is good because in Kakuma refugee camp I cannot have faith, but in a camp you cannot be free in mind psychologically. To be given one kilo of food, of wood, of what, and stay there, you can become, I don't know, you can become a devil. To be in a camp is a good thing if they let me come in Nairobi and visit my people. Let me teach, let me do my business, let my children be free to take school. So that when they are in their own country, they can get a chance to be a deputy, a governor, a good teacher, is what they, we want nowadays. You cannot make me go back to ancient times. Things are evolving, going up, changing. So it's important for Samuel to prepare himself and his family for going back to Burundi one day and to provide the family with opportunities for the future by staying in Nairobi, even if it is less secure than life in Kakuma. Because in Kakuma you get the food and the security and so on. You might have legal benefits of being a refugee and the material benefits of food and firewood, but no freedom and, this is, and thus no opportunities for the future. 
He needs to move to visit his people, to teach, and first and foremost to give his children a good education. Otherwise, he will remain stuck in ancient times, as he says, while the world moves on, evolving, going up, changing. His hopes for the future are to return to Burundi and for his children to get important positions in a new Burundi as governors or deputies. And in order to enhance his odds, he has to stay in touch and keep evolving. Freedom is about being able to make such choices while the lack of freedom in the camp leads to losing faith and becoming like a devil, he says. Furthermore, Samuel seems to be afraid of being forgotten in the isolation of the camp, of becoming nobody in the world. And I have another quote from him. When I go in a camp in Kakuma, you cannot do something you want. I want to become someone before I die. In Kakuma, you're limited. The knowledge you will get is not enough to expand your knowledge. So the camp is like a simple prison. You cannot feel free. So what to do when the world does not want you? You do what you can to survive. <coughs> the camp is a prison in many ways, preventing him from various activities. And at the most existential level, it prevents him from becoming someone. It takes away his being. Even though Samuel would physically be able to survive in the camp, this is not a life worth living to him. I want to become someone before I die, he claims. And in order to become someone, he needs social relations, mobility, education, and access to different kinds of information. And he says, I hear BBC, France, American, English. I can hear everything from the international talking, every time I'm hearing from the radio what is happening. It's very important for him not to this sense that time is moving and he's, getting, he's stopping. Nairobi provides him, with other word, in other words, with the possibility to shape his own destiny, to change and to develop, because it provides freedom and because it gives the option to stay in touch. Most of the Burundians at Kawangwari emphasized the fact that they were better positioned in Nairobi to stay in touch with the outside world through the internet as an important reason for staying in the city. Staying in touch is about keeping one's future options open, trying to navigate in relation to possibilities and options in the future, although they very often very are, are bleak, these options. These might be jobs, scholarships, money from relatives abroad, possibilities to go abroad, or keeping up with developments in Burundi in order to monitor the future options for return to Burundi. Without these connections and means of communication, it is difficult to manage one's hopes in the future. Furthermore, staying in touch is about maintaining networks and not being forgotten, and hence losing one's identity as someone. Living in a liminality, one carries the risk of being forgotten and disappearing as a social being, and remaining connected is a means to reduce this risk. Um, there was another, and then I'll just shortly talk about, and this is something I haven't really worked out how much space they're supposed to take up in the paper, but there was another group of, of Bruneians living in Nairobi, and they were completely disconnected from this group. And I, the only reason I, I got in contact with them was I had two very different um, accesses to Burundians in, in Nairobi. And these were um, people living in more urban areas uh, between Majengo and Eastleigh among Swahili traders, Congolese and Somalis. They were often Muslims from Bujumbura and they were living in the present. They were tailoring, hairdressing and trying to hide their Burundian identity. They were speaking Swahili and mixing in. They had virtually no interaction with the Burundians in Kawangara. Um, And basically what they were doing was trying to, they were leaving Burundi and they were trying to have, see their presence, their, their future and their presence in, in uh, Nairobi. And, and this whole idea about keeping their options open and being out of place was not uh, something that was interesting for them.
Jiran and his friends were adamant not to put down roots and become emplaced in Nairobi as the Swahili-speaking Bruneans around Majingo were doing by investing in hairdressers, salons and kioskis. Nairobi was harsh and well, unwelcoming, but rather than leave the city and go to the camps or become part of this environment through ingenious livelihood strategies, as the Burundians in East Limajengo did, they made a virtue out of necessity. In Nairobi, they have to renounce the daily joys of life. They rarely ate meat and they did not drink, dance or have girlfriends. For them, it was the toughness of life. It was the daily sacrifice that made Nairobi the right place to prepare for the future. The daily sacrifice has also worked as a reminder of the loss that they have suffered in the past. In this sense, Nairobi became a place of this dire placement, a transit to somewhere else. Um, and this thing about sacrifice is something I, I would like to work more on. And if you have questions would be, or suggestions, it would be great. So sort of trying to compare and sum up. So despite both places being in places of dire placement, um, Nairobi deferred from the camp in two ways. First, refugees in the camp were actively trying to change their future through violent political action. They were using the non-place of the camp to organize collectively and change their own destinies by fighting the regime in the Bujumbura. In Nairobi, the non-place was more individualistic. Every Burundian had to work hard on gaining knowledge, persevere and give individual sacrifice in order to create better selves for a future in Burundi or elsewhere. Secondly, the transitory, transitory, whatever, liminal spaces of the camp and the city were also different in character. The refugees perceived the camp to be isolated and heavily monopolized by the political elite. Burundi, on the other hand, was often highlighted as open. Nairo uh, Nairobi, I think I said. Uh, Nairobi was the chosen destiny of many Burundians because you could keep in touch with the world. In other words, you could hide and be invisible in Nairobi, and you could use Nairobi as a stepping stone to something better. In Nairobi, the Burundians were not only out of place, they were also, ideally at least, in an open-ended place. In practice, this was, of course, difficult, since they were all dependent on each other and on the rivaling churches in order to survive, which meant that they to some degree were root rooted in local hierarchies of power. While remaining out of place was impossible in practice, and they had to get jobs and so on and so on, uh, whether in the camp or in the city, it functioned as an ideal to strive for. In the camp, the political elite made sure that this ideal was upheld, while in Nairobi, it was upheld by the individual through sacrifice and self-discipline. So to conclude, diaplacement or the use of displacement as a means to remain outside the present in order to retrieve what was lost in the past sometime in the future can take on different forms. In the camp it took the shape of a carefully policed seclusion site where the nation, wait, you know, what do you call it, from seclusion sites, are guided through to the next stage. A political elite makes sure that the emplacement isn't limited. <coughs> that the, the placement is limited and nurtures collective narratives about a lost past and a desirable future worth fighting for. The camp is at once a pure exception from the national order of things. A prime example of a government's permanent exception where bare life exists as bias outside of police. And simultaneously, a place that is hyper-politicized by the refugees themselves. This may seem a contradiction or we may see it as two different movements pointing in each direction, as the agency of refugees resisting their objectification by relief agencies in a heroic double ontology of structure and agency. I would argue instead that it might be a paradox 
but it is inherent that one springs from the other. In other words, it is exactly the displacement and dislocating effects of the camp that are the source and resources for this hyper-politicization. So this, I, I, as I said before, the, the fact that they are depoliticized also makes them hyper-politicized. In Nairobi, Burundian refugees remain outside the national order of things, but rather than be grouped by the state into a camp secluded from the national territory in an exceptional space, they hide in the urban jungle of the city. Here they can go below the radar and live life as Denizans, neither here nor there. And while some Burundians in Nairobi decide to use this opportunity to embrace themselves, you know, emplace themselves in the pulsating, ever-changing and multicultural parts of the city, together with Congolese, the Somalis and the Waswahili, others choose to live invisible lives parallel to the rest of the city, lives where they are preparing themselves for something else, elsewhere. For them, Nairobi is a non-place, not because it is secluded and hidden away as the camp, but because it is a stepping stone, a bridge, a portal to something else, either in Burundi, Europe, or North America. And I think that's another issue that I haven't quite come to terms with, this visibility and visibility in two different ways, um, um, almost reversed in the two cases. I have argued for a new angle to the displacement-emplacement debate, allowing us to conceptualize the traumatizing effect of displacement as a strategy. To this end, we need to think temporality into the spatiality of displacement. Displaced people may become emplaced in the present, but the traumatic and dislocating effects of displacement entail a loss of a past and can therefore point towards a future recuperation. Diaplacement, to live in a non-place, means to live between a lost past and a future yet to come. It means to live a life of becoming rather than being. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sam. Maybe I'll turn over to Patricia to give us a couple of comments. Okay, thank you. Um, I'd just like to thank Simon for that. Um, I've always admired Simon's work from afar. Um, in the 80s, I did research among Burundian refugees in Tanzania around the same time that Lisa Malki was um, having her excursions there. Um, and I was, you know, um, I think Lisa's work um, was published and was, I thought was very theoretically strong, but I thought it was quite one-dimensional and superficial in terms of its evidence. Um, and a lot of the things I saw, which I didn't write about in my thesis, I was so pleased and excited when um, Simon's work started to be published about life in the camps, um, particularly uh, uh, emphasizing the agency of refugees um, talking about issues um, of intergenerational struggles and shifting gender relations. And for me, those were important because there, were not, there was another story, I felt, to the one of mythical histories and violence that um, was uh, written so eloquently about by, by Lisa Malki. Um, so uh, since then, I've uh, you know, I just um, think Simon's work, uh, Simon has work has tended to give agency to refugees, and so despite their encampment, um, victimology really uh, does not shape and their lived and continue to shape their lived experience. And I think this paper follows the same lines by seeking to identify the human possibilities in those interstitial spaces that refugees occupy, whether in camps or on margins in the city. 
And, you know, reading, I got this last night, <laughs> I read it um, just before I came because I wasn't going to do any work during my strike period. Um, thinking comparatively, you know, I, I think most of us can think about, I, I like the idea of um, dire placement and the idea of being dis within the context of displacement or choosing displacement to shape the future back home. And I think many of us can think of examples like that. I remember listening to a talk um, given by someone working on Southern Sudanese political elite and how they sent their children to Cuba for training for that future. And I remember in 19, when I was doing research and meeting Rwandan refugees from, um, 19, from the 1964 cohort in Western Tanzania, their children were in Burundi or in Congo so that they could learn and be educated in French for that future to come. You know, and I think that's a strategy which not only refugees use, but immigrants. Because I've met um, you know, children from uh, Eritreans in Italy who send their children you know, in, in Oxford because they want them to have an education in English for that future back home. So I think you know, you've, you've, you know, you've really highlighted a state which probably hasn't really been covered much in literature. Um, and how you know, refugees and immigrants go about in creating that space. Um, and I think position, uh, positioning oneself or your family for a future yet to come is agential and perhaps challenges that sort of current uh, popular concept of waiting, which for me seems quite pathological. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think, and I also like... Uh, this whole notion of dire place, choosing the concept of dire place is really about, I thought when I read it, I thought it, this is about creating spaces of hope and spaces of freedom and re being, you know, trying to find that space where you can retain the power to shape your destiny, right? When all other possibilities uh, are not there. Um, and in, the con in that context within the camp, for example, where the state shuts down, and I mean, you know, I have no problem with your discussion about, you know, the state of refugees in Tanzania. Um, I don't know Burundians um, in Nairobi that well, but certainly um, having, you know, where there's no alternative, you know, I think, uh, you know, and having the power to be able to create some space and spaces of hope, I think is very important. And I think you're right, that's where the Pentecostal church or other churches come in, because they do provide that for, for, for these young people. I think I have a, the, where I have a problem is your use of place. And I think probably your overuse of the concept of place, displacement, dire placement, and so on, right? And I think Orge's concept of non-place I mean, I sort of look back again into his work, and he was referring to sort of su you know supermodern spaces, these you know um, airports, no man's lands, and so on, places empty, empty spaces, of, you know, um, and uh, you know as a geographers, we normally argue that places are spaces, uh, are localities with meaning, you know, with attachment, with some history, and so on. Um, and he was looking at those spaces, and he was focusing really on the individual, experience of the individual, it's very in, within those spaces, you know, um, sentiments of boredom, solitariness, and so on. And I just thinking, it doesn't really, does it really apply, you know, to these spaces where these refugees live, even in Nairobi, even though you try to, because there's a community of them, there are two or three of them, they're not, you know, how is it possible to be in a non-place, in, in Africa anyway, <laughs> um, it, it might, you know, um, unless, on, only if it's perceived as such, but certainly not socially, not materially. Um, so, 
And then the other issue is about this non-place. Once a person, I mean, again, I think geographers have argued that once a person gains familiarity with a, a place, a non-place, it is no longer a non-place, it's a place. <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, I, I, I think in this sense, you probably ought to think about, the, you know, use the concept of relation, relationality. Um, both in terms of people moving, you know, the movement between these places, but also between displacement, diapla you know, placement as you call it, or even emplacement. Because um, I think, and I, you know, um, that, you know, it might be possible for you to stress that. And I, I think the other thing I thought was, um, I, I had concerns about was, Again, I think your work has stressed the agency of refugees and, um, and, and the complexity of the refugee situation and the camp, the camp context. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and I, I think it's much admired from, for that. Um, but, all, but here again, um, but I wonder sometimes if we can emphasize agency too much. And in regards to these agency of refugees in non-places, um, you know, I just think about uh, the, the situation, well, uh, in Tanzania, where if resettlement, if settlement in Tanzania was an option, that would enhance the, that would enable these political elite to establish their lives. Would they have sought, you know, would they be campaigning? I mean, think about refugees groups in history where they didn't, there wasn't an option. People settle, they even, you know, get involved in local politics, Cuban refugees or other. So if you look beyond this space, um, if the state did not limit them to a particular place, if they were allowed to be visible mm. in Nairobi, <laughs> you know, mm. um, would, they, would, would they not have emplaced themselves like the other refugees? You know? um, and I, again, I want to think relationally because I think emplacement, non-place, I think these are temporary. Often there's a certain degree of temporality to all these mm. um, situations in which people find themselves. Although in some cases they can, they can become permanent. And, you know, as you say, sometimes they are, de the refugees are destitute um, because they don't necessarily achieve, you know, that future that they're aiming for. But it's not always lost. And this lost, and this is where hope comes into it. People, you know, think about those Rwandan <coughs> refugees. They were able to retain hope home and some <coughs> positions of power in government. So I think, you know, thinking a bit about the temporality of these and the relationality of them um, might, you know, might, might be quite interesting. You know, that's, that's my two pence. Thank you, Patricia. Mm -hmm. I'd like to respond. First of all, I say thank you for all the kind words. I'm, I'm, oof. Um, <coughs> and, and, but, but just to comment a bit on, I saw two main things. Mm -hmm. One was the use of, of, of place, overuse of it, and especially non-place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I agree completely that, that, that it collapses, and you mentioned it, I was noting it down, then you mentioned it yourself, the fact that once you, once people begin to recognize that non-place, it's no longer non-place. Mm -hmm. So I think this is also what, <coughs> what I'm, I'm um, struggling with both with the refugee camps but also with um, Nairobi is that I'm trying to s I, 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 and I don't know how to do it theoretically but there is this tension between on the one hand being something different it's not the same as being in a village it's not the same as being in the city mm -hmm. as a citizen there are constraints on the other hand I also see like I also see that life is that the 
places being created, lift mm-hmm. places being created in the camps with the politics, with the business, with uh, gender um, struggles, generational struggles, um, violence, everything is creating and there's wealthy parts of the camps and poor parts of the camps and, and so the camp is becoming a place. Mm-hmm. But it's still not the same as any other place. And this is what I'm struggling with. And I think it's, but and, and I, another thing that's very important is that Auger's uh, um, non places are meant to be the sort of super modern, or whatever he calls it, a high modernist, wealthy part of the world. It's airports and so on. And these are people who are not, have not chosen to be in where they are. They, they, are, they are pushed out. So it's a different kind of non place they're in. But. Um, so I'm not really answering you very um, clearly, but I, I think perhaps what one could also say, and what I try also to say in the paper, is there's this, um, for people like Gérard, they do get engaged in the place, they have mm. to, but they also try to denounce it because it's important for them as an ideal. Um, I tried to write something about consumption at one point, this idea as soon as you're consuming you're also becoming part of the place. And I, I know someone who does, did the similar, you mentioned migrants, mm. with Turkish migrants in Denmark um, who would never, who would spend all their money back in Turkey. And when their kids start buying houses in Denmark, that's mm. wrong. Mm. Or if they go on holiday in Switzerland rather mm. than Turkey, that's wrong. So consumption mm. is a practice and an everyday practice, but it also has the symbol of becoming engaged with the place where you are. And therefore, for somebody like Gérard, this uh, preferably don't consume anything, which is easy enough for him because he doesn't have anything to spend. But um, he has to get involved, mm-hmm. but he's trying not to. So I think there's a, a tension between the practice and the ideal there. Then you have this thing about uh, um, emphasizing agency too much. I'm not sure quite what to, to say about that, but I think one thing that I would like to write about is this fact what I, I mentioned is this the, the policing also taking place so there might be agency but it's not always free will and individual agency which I tried to, I think I showed quite nicely with the refugee camp but it's also happening in Nairobi that they are also there are also power relations there uh, that define how you can behave and how you cannot behave Gérard was like uh, the king of a small, you know, he had a lot of other people he was guiding, and then there were churches, and there were competition between mm-hmm. churches. So they were they were policing how to remain out of place, and this is something that's classical, which has also been discussed both with migrants and mm-hmm. refugees. How the older generation is again policing the younger generation to remain out of place, to remain pure. So it's not pure agency in that sense. And then, of course, the other part of not being pure agency is the fact that they are forced, mm-hmm. as, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure quite how to, to answer that right here and now, but I think you sort of said, well, if they hadn't been pushed out, marginalized one way or the other in, in Tanzania, they're put into camps in, 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 in Nairobi, they're just basically harassed, um, would they then act differently? I think maybe the case with Majeng, the people living in Eastley and Majengo is interesting mm-hmm. because these people are living in Nairobi under the same circumstances, mm-hmm. but they still have chosen another way to mm-hmm. be in Nairobi. They're being in Nairobi rather than becoming. And that, I think, is related to their position vis-a-vis the home country <coughs> and politics, which is, again, one of the arguments I have with Malki mm-hmm. is that she doesn't have mm-hmm. politics in her. And I'll stop. Thank you very much. <laughs>